You're listening to a sermon from Tyler Christian Fellowship in Tyler, Texas. Find us on the web at tcftyler.com or send us an email, tcftyler at gmail.com. All right, so um, last couple of weeks, uh, in studying the book of uh, Nehemiah, we've been uh, talking about um, the enemy's uh, weapons and tactics, um, and it's really vital that we understand these things uh, as the church, um, because we do have an enemy. He's very real. Uh, he has um, evil intentions uh, toward us, um, and uh, he is uh, merciless and cruel, and um, there's just no line that he wouldn't cross uh, to hurt you, to discourage you. Uh, to separate you, to ruin your relationships. He wants you alone, and he wants you miserable, and he wants you dead. So he wants you as miserable as possible, and he wants you dead as soon as possible, okay? But we're breathing today, aren't we? We're alive, so he's not having his way with us, right? Um, and that's not just like the minimum thing. I mean, it's, it's a fact that God doesn't want us just to survive, but he wants us to thrive, and he wants us to overcome the enemy. So the last couple of weeks we've been talking about that. Uh, this week we're going to talk about something even more vital and closer to home that we, uh, um, and we're going to do a little exercise at the end, okay? Well, actually, it's not going to be the end, hopefully, um, uh, if I can get through my introduction, uh, which is always a challenge to do that on time, because there's so much to say, you know? What if you had like 20 or 30 minutes where you could just say anything you wanted to say, you know? Uh, you know, it just, it goes really quick, and uh, I'm trying to be faithful to the Lord here. And this is not coming from me, this is coming from the, the Word and from God's message to us. That's kind of what my challenge is, um, is to take the Word and to put it in a way that is, like, digestible and, and something that we can incorporate into our lives um, on a daily basis. Everybody that preaches is not doing that, but that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm trying to do to the best of my ability. And I wanted to start with the scripture um, that we're, we're actually going to be looking at uh, Nehemiah 8, 1 through 10, 39. Um, but uh, I wanted to start with no, uh, Nehemiah 7, 1 and 2, um, just because we're going to be going far beyond that. But um, they have now built the wall. Nehemiah 7, 1 says, And now when the wall had been built, and I set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. And I just want to point out to you, first of all, that you can build a wall, but if you haven't secured the gates, the stuff that you let in and the stuff that you let out, that wall can secure, but it cannot be secure until the gates are secured. And that's what he's saying now. Now the, the, um, the city is secure as far as the wall goes. But look at what um, they set up um, in conjunction with the gates. So one of these things is not like the other, okay? What, like the, um, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites. So which one of those is not really, doesn't really sound like it's much like the others to you? I, it, I'll give you the answer. It's the gatekeepers, right? But that's exactly what you would expect for the gates, is the gatekeepers. But then he also appoints the singers and the Levites. And what that means is now they have moved beyond the physical securing of the city, and they are moving into worship. They're moving into what the city is secured for. It's not just secured so that they can be safe. It's secured so that they can worship. They can worship unmolested. 
They can worship God in the way that pleases God. And I also want to point out to you that the Levites were appointed by Moses, but the singers were appointed by David. They have not forgotten David's form of worship, which was so transformative and so powerful. David went above and beyond, as any believer will do, knowing the will of God. He went above and beyond. He appointed singers. He appointed people to minister to God in ways that God never said, you have to do this. It's like you can't contain the exuberance of his praise. And so they are, they are securing the city, but they're also setting the stage for worship, true worship, to be restored um, to them. Um, so have you ever been to a place in your life um, that, that you just felt devastated? You ever, ever been to a place like that in your life where you just, and, and here's how it happens with me, it makes me question everything and wonder if any of it was real. You ever, ever been in a place like that? Because it just looks like, it's, it may not be the end of the world, but it's the end of the world as you know it. And you may, you may be at a place like that today. And if you are, this message is for you. Worship was for you today too. And I think you, would, you could bear witness to that. Um, when you're devastated, you can't, you can't go back. And that's just a fact. We can't go back. But we can go on in light of what we have experienced. God is the God of restoration. Amen? God is the God of second chances. And so when you reach that rock bottom, when you reach that place, when you look around you like Israel is doing right now, and all you see is rubble, and all you see is, is waste, and the, the remnants of what you once had, you know that God has a purpose for you. We have several in our church that are really crafty, and uh, they, they are making, you know, items and, uh, and stuff like that. I'm always amazed when I see some of the stuff that um, you guys are making. And what, what we are experiencing now, uh, sort of uh, our culture is experiencing, is what we call uh, repurposing. So you take something that was junk or was used for a particular purpose and served a particular purpose, and then you say, I'm going to continue to use this. Have you ever seen this? Like the, the decorations and the, and the crafts and stuff that are made, they're just beautiful. And part of it is that there's a history in those things. You know? Part of it is that, like, I don't know, our house, one of the things that we watch, I'm going to identify with my wife there, um, is that where they flip the houses, where they come in and they just kind of, you know, redo stuff. And a lot of times they go in and they think this is what we're going to do. And once they start doing it, they're like, hey, we could do this and we could do that. And they go to the junkyard. And the, at the junkyard, they get like doors or windows or stuff that they'll make a table out of, you know, that wasn't a table before. And it's repurposed stuff. Listen, God is the, that kind of God. He doesn't look at stuff and say, that's junk. He looks at stuff and he says, that's valuable. We can use this. One of the reasons why in, in the Middle East and especially in Jerusalem that there's not a whole lot of stuff left from previous generations is because there was a wall and that wall was torn down and they took the rocks of that wall. You know, like um, uh, when uh, Solomon built the temple, he had those stones specifically cut, beautiful stones, perfectly usable stones. And then the temple is torn down and what do they do? They rebuild. And when they rebuild, they use what they have. And that's what God does with us as well. Even though you may look around and you may see that 
it just looks like devastation. God says, I can use that. And not only can I use those materials and repurpose those materials, but I can use you. And I can repurpose you. And he's always waiting for us to get on board with him because that's where he's going, man. The gospel train's moving on and then he wants you, wants you to be on board. Um, God is a God of restoration. Listen, he responds to our pain. He responds to our pain. One of the lies that the devil tells people over and over again is that you're alone. You're on your own. You're getting what you deserve. And God is constantly saying, hey, wait a minute. They're not on their own. And you're just like, well, I've failed. It's my fault. I'm getting what I deserve. And God's like, I'm with you in that. I'm absolutely with you in that. And I'm the key to going on. I'm the key to rebuilding, repurposing, redirecting your life. And that's what Nehemiah is all about. That's what the book of Nehemiah is all about. When he restores, listen to this, if you've been through something in, uh, in a relationship or in a job or something like that, and then everything seems to fall apart, and you look at it and you're just like, man, I didn't appreciate what I had. I want to get back to what I had. God's not in that. God's not in that. Because when something is broken and restored, it can be remade better. He doesn't want your marriage to be what you wanted it to be or what you thought that it was. He wants to take those broken pieces and he wants to rebuild it in such a way that it's, it's exactly what he wanted to do in the first place. That we get off track here and we get off track there. He doesn't just say, let's go back to where we were. You can't go back. But he can remake you in light of the experiences that you've had to be what he always wanted it to be in the first place. Amen? Have you experienced that to be true? Have you been through a time in your life when you were just devastated and you looked around and there's nothing but destruction? And maybe you're there now. Maybe that's, maybe that's where you were. Listen, man, women, the, um, the advantage that you're at right now is that you get to choose how to put it back together again based on your own understanding of your failures and based on your own understanding of your missed opportunities, that you get to choose the way that you want to live now in light of those things. You're not locked in. You're free. And He's with you in that. So we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 8, 9, and most of 10. And... Uh, I want to, um, and this, this whole chapter is about, they've rebuilt the wall, they, they, they have the opportunity, but they also have the responsibility of saying, what are we gonna, how are we going to put this back together again? What do we have from our past that we can build with? Maybe better this time than, the, than what we did um, last time. And the whole uh, chapter of, uh, cha chapter 8, not the whole chapter, but most of the chapter of 8, uh, 9, and then 10, is all about what they did once the wall was rebuilt. It said they put the singers and they put the Levites up there. That means that worship is a priority. It's not just you know, something that we do, but it's the reason that we live. Um, and as they begin to read the Word and they begin to experience the Word, they're hearing things that they haven't heard before. I shouldn't say that. They probably have heard these things, but they didn't understand. And they didn't, they didn't incorporate it into their lives. And now it's a little bit different because they're so broken. And it's about repentance. You know, there's, um, there's some 
aspects of walking with the Lord that is almost repentant phobic. It's like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about, you know, I, I understand. I'm, I'm very, you know, idealistic about my walk with Jesus and my life in the Lord and all the things that He's made available to me. But I also have a real mixed feeling about just being honest and saying, you know what? I'm wrong here and I've failed here. Listen, if that's the condition that you're in, I'm speaking from experience here, it really will affect your marriage. <laughs> you know, I... I'm, you know, I am what I am in Jesus Christ. I'm not going to confess all of that negative stuff. And your husband or your wife is just like, dude, you're not perfect. I, you know, I reject that in Jesus' name. I'm perfect in Jesus, yes. But I am also human and I also fail. And there's health and there's strength in a lifestyle of repentance. Not just saying you were sorry when you came to Jesus, but being able to keep short accounts. With that, and we're going to talk about repentance here. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. When I first came to the Lord, I had a lot. Actually, I'll tell you the whole story. Uh, I remember driving around. I had come to the Lord. I was on cloud nine, man, filled with the Holy Spirit in a relationship with Jesus, seeing amazing things going on everywhere I turned, so couldn't get enough of the Word, uh, learning all of these things, and I was so full. And I was driving around, and, uh, and I was just thinking, you know, I was thinking about the other people that I was in relationship with and that we were being discipled together, and I, you know, they had some big problems. They, they did, man. They were just like, you know, they had some big problems. And I looked at my life, and I was just like, I pretty much got it together. You know, I thank thee, O oh God, that I am not like these. Although I didn't know that scripture and I didn't know that reference, but I did, literally, I remember this to this day. And it just humbles me. It's embarrassing, but you guys are family, so we can talk about it, you know. And it was just like I was thinking, and, I, and all it was is that I was walking in a measure of grace that God had given me where I saw nothing but hope and nothing but confidence in Jesus Christ. And he hadn't got down to the dirty work of actually dealing with my dirty feet and my, my you know, selfish lifestyle and my inability to hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is just as important as walking on that cloud nine. I think that's so vital to somebody that comes to the Lord, but I think also being able to get down to it. And I was taught that, like repentance was, a, was an integral part of almost every message, every Bible study that I was a part of. And I thank God for that, because some people just are a kind of anemic in their walk because they never experienced that. Um, so this, what we're talking about today, um, is about that. So I want to give you some... Steps to godly repentance, because this is vital to your health and your, and your relationship with the Lord. Let me say this. I don't think that if you fail or fall or sin or something like that, that you're in danger of losing your salvation. Okay? Even if it's a besetting sin and you have a hard time, you know, getting on top of it and you seem like you... It's just like, that's how I am and that's how I'll always be. And, you know, I can't change that. That's just me. That's a lie, that's not true, but that's not going to cost you your salvation, okay? God is always ready, and He's always working to bring us around. He hasn't given up on you, and He's not looking, you know, to squash you, waiting for the opportunity. Ah, now I got Him, boom. He's not doing that. 
He's looking for the opportunity when you cry out to him. He's touched by our pain and he's touched by, you know, the, the cry that comes up to him. He hears that and he's going to do something about it. OK, so repentance is not necessarily so you can maintain or save your your uh, position with God. But if you're not walking in the fullness of what he has for you, you're not experiencing it. Your heart is being hardened. And you're not seeing, you're blinded, you're not able to see. It doesn't mean you're going to hell, it just means that you're living in too much hell right here. And he wants to free you from that. Okay, everybody with me? So here's the steps to godly um, repentance um, that he's talking about in the, 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 uh, he wants us to experience the grace and the, and the, uh, the peace that comes. I'll go back to it. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So the first one is to remember God. Passages that we're going to lead, uh, read, I want you just to, as we're reading those, I want you to um, watch for these steps in what happens. Remember God. The first thing when you confess your sin to God, the first thing that you should do is remember who God is. Put Him on His throne. Because even if it's really bad what you've done, it still doesn't all revolve around you, right? You need to remember why you're repenting, and that's because he's so good. You, remember, you need to remember why you're repenting, and it's because he has done so much to make it possible for us to be free from our sins. So we start by remembering God. Secondly, we remember ourselves. When you can see yourself clearly, unabashedly, no justification, just clear and, and straight, and see yourself that way, then you're ready to repent. But as long as you're still making excuses, your repentance is going to be really shallow. He wants it to be deep. The, second is to, the third is to confess. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confess means to say the same thing. Con, say with, and fess. He wants us to say the same thing about our sin that He says about our sin. And not justify it, not call it by a pet name or something like that, but say about it what he says about it. Then you're ready to actually experience it. And then the next one is to repent. And that means to change direction. It doesn't mean saying, I'm sorry. You ever seen anybody do like this? Like they'll, I don't know, cuss, use God's name in vain. And then they're just like, oh God, I'm so sorry for that. Right? Does that change anything? It changes when you stop using God's name in vain. That's what it is. That's what he's after. Not just saying, you know, like, I'm going to say something to God and that's going to give me some breathing room here. But it's like I'm changing my heart. When I, when I change direction, repentance, metanoia, means you're going one direction and you turn around and go one, do a 180. Not a 360, but a 180. All right, and then the last one is to repurpose. No matter where you are in your life, God has already put some gold in there. And maybe what you're going through is just to show you what's gold and what's not. Because sometimes we think, it's, and it's fool's gold, we think we've got a lot, and God shakes it, and He tries it, and He refines it, and it comes out much less than we thought, but that's real gold. That's true gold. That's the stuff you can build on. And so you repurpose your life. You look at the things that God has already established and that you know to be true and that you know to be trustworthy and reliable, even if you have not been faithful to them. And that's what he's going to use for a foundation to, to turn your life around and to, to repurpose and renew your life. Revelation chapter 3, verse 2 says, 
Wake up and strengthen what remains and, it, uh, and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. That was to uh, Sardis, um, to the church at Sardis. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. You have some things in your life, even if you're devastated today, or even if you have been in the past and just had a hard time getting over that, God says, strengthen the things that remain. There are some good things there. There is some, some gold there. And that's what we're going to build with. All right, so here's what I want us to do today. If you have read uh, Nehemiah uh, chapter 8, 9 and 10, what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of mimic what they did, okay? So if you will, stand with me. And this is Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 through 10, 39. And it says, All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from the early morning till midday. We're not going to be here that long, okay? But this is like an exercise. The other night when we did our last um, uh, Wednesday night prayer, David had us all kneel before the Lord. And it taught me two things. It, it reminded me of what that position uh, before God does and what it's like to be the, the physical position of kneeling before the Lord. And the other one is, is I don't have very much, you know, uh, long suffering when it comes to kneeling. My knees are not used like they might have been at one time. Um, and it's not because they're old. They just haven't been in that position enough before. And when I read this, I was thinking, so they stood from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So that's what we're doing today. We're standing before um, the Lord. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Ananiah and Uriah and Hilkiah and Messiah on his right hand. And Pedaliah, I mean, sorry, Pediah, uh, Mishael, uh, Malkajan, uh, Hashem, Hashbadana, uh, Zechariah and Meshullam on his left hand. And so all of that is in there to humble any preachers who are trying to stand really like officious, and I know what I'm talking about. That's why they named these guys this. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Just look for the steps of repentance that I just gave you, because these are evident in the things that they're doing here. Um, he blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, also Je uh, Jeshua, Bani, um, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, uh, Masiah, Kel Kelita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, and Peliah, 
the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book, the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, uh, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Because they hadn't heard it. They hadn't heard it. And they were hearing it, as it were, for the first time. And that's what devastation can do to us. We can hear it for the first time. May have heard it before, but they heard it as if for the first time. And, and then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that's the Feast of Booths. And what God was doing is He was incorporating into their, their year that they were going to live like they lived in the wilderness for a while, for, for seven days. So they built these little booths and so it, like they went camping in their own yards or in their own uh, 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 backyards. So that, they didn't even know about that. So they, are, they just found it um, and uh, that they should proclaim it and publish it in all of their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and on the, in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And by the way, if you go to Israel today, you'll see that they still, do, um, they still are doing this. They usually do it for one day or a couple of days, and they usually don't stay in them. They'll eat in them, but they're still observing this. So the people went out and brought, brought them and made booths for themselves, and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for... From the days of Joshua, of Yeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the, iniquity of the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and they worshiped the Lord their God. And on the, on the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua and Bani and Kidmiel and the other guys. And they cried, and they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua and Cadmiel and Benai and 
all the other guys, said, said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts and the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of the heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. And you found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his off to his offering that the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Gergesite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all the servants and all the people of his land. For you know that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them by day and by a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments with statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock of their thirst. You told them to go in to possess the land and that you had sworn, that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and they did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't wear out. And their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner so that they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land 
And they took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards and olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and, a stiffened, and they stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. See, that's why it's so important to start with realizing who he is, because you're going to come back to that over and over and over and over again. Because you are a great and merciful, gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let, us, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully with us and have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid their great good, your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good fruit. Behold, we are slaves. And it is rich yield, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So now they're moving from repentance to they're going to make a covenant with God. This is unprecedented. This is something that has never happened before. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land and unto the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have, have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers and their nobles and enter into a curse 
and even an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We will take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for their service, for the service of the house of God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offerings, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. This is a covenant that they signed now, and their, 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 um, their leaders um, all signed. We the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed uh, year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of your herds and our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of God, to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priests and the sons of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe, the tithe of the tithes to the house of God in the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi, Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessel of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Okay, you can be seated. As we come to the table of the Lord today, and this is, it should always be this way, but I know sometimes everything that we do, even though it's God-blessed and breathed on by Jesus, it can just become routine. And I just pray that God would give us, you know, fresh ears to hear, a fresh heart to follow, to admit and to confess our sins to the Lord. I can, I can tell you how you know that you've really confessed and really repented before God is that when you get up from that position before God, when you have confessed and you have repented and you have fully received His forgiveness, you don't care what anybody else says about it. You're not worried about saving face. You can freely admit what you have done wrong. And, and most of the time, when you get up from there, the first thing that you're going to do is to go and have a conversation with somebody that you've offended and somebody that you've wronged, somebody that you've done, done wrong, that, ha, that has suffered because of the things that you have done. So the opportunity is wide open for you today. As we come to the table of the Lord, first of all, we come rejoicing. The reason why they were rejoicing is because God was restoring them. 
And that's something to rejoice about. That's not just something to take in stride and just like, oh God, I'm sorry about that and go on with life as it was, but that you realize your devastation and your utter humiliation. And not because God is putting something on you, but because you see Him and you see yourself and you just want to be right with Him. So they come rejoicing. We come to the table today rejoicing. He's the God of the second chance and the third and the fourth. And if he applies to himself what he told us to do to the, to the, uh, the 70th, the, the, the 70 times seven, every time you come to him in true repentance like these people did where they laid it out and they enumerated they told God's faithfulness and they told of their failure and they reminded God he's a God of mercy and a God of a second chance. You do that, you're speaking his language, man. He understands. He understands a broken and a contrite heart. And he wants to fill you with his spirit, but he doesn't want to fill us to, for us to use it for ourselves. He wants to fill us so that we can walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. He's good. And we're rejoicing because we're going home. This is where we belong. We're unburdening ourselves, casting our cares upon Him because He cares for us. Have you ever heard anybody describe it that way? Like I came to the Lord and when I, when I, when I gave my heart to the Lord or when I repented, it was like a huge weight was lifted off of me. You ever heard anybody say that? Anybody feel like you're weighed down today? Anybody feel like you're maybe carrying a burden? What is that burden? What is it that when we repent is lifted off of us? Well, it's guilt. And it's shame and it's condemnation. And these are not things that God is putting on us. That's just because we're handling it in an unhealthy way. What he's lifting off of us is the burden that he never designed us to bear. That he bore once and for all. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to unburden us. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's this simple. Let him be God. You be not God. Admit to him where you have failed and fallen and fallen short and receive his forgiveness. It's guaranteed. If you confess your sins, he's faithful. You do your part. He does his part. He's always looking for that opportunity. And then to walk in it. Let's just pause for a minute and prepare our hearts to come to the table. Thank you, Lord. Lord, search us and try us and know our anxious thoughts. We repent, Lord, for holding on to sin that you have paid the price for. We repent, Lord Jesus, for walking in a manner that doesn't bring glory to you and, and doesn't, um, doesn't exhibit a lifestyle of grace and peace and godliness. We repent, Lord. And how we have suffered as a result of that. And I know you, you shouldn't listen to it, but you do, Lord. Because we're getting what we deserve, but you don't want us to get what we deserve. You want us to get what you have for us, Lord which is not just justice, but it's mercy. Prepare our hearts to come to this table as if it was the first time, Lord, today.
Thank you, Lord. that the Lord is saying he wants us to learn his language he wants us to be able to communicate with him not in a halting way and in, a, in an awkward way but to speak the language of God to God and to hear the language of God to us his ways are not our ways but he doesn't want his ways to be strange to us he wants his ways to be what we love what we thrive on, what we walk in. When we see our daddy do something to say, that's the way I want to be. I want to be like him. I want to talk like him. I want to walk like him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Can I have the uh, elders that are going to serve in their lives? David and Emily are on this side if you want uh, prayer as you come through and Caleb is on this side um, so you can certainly pause and pray sometimes it just helps you know to pray with somebody whether it's something that you're burdened with or something that you're worried about or just something that uh, you want to get straight with God you just want to want to get uh, the full benefit of his um, forgiveness so on the night he was betrayed he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and eat it, all of you, for this is my body which was broken for you. Thank you, Lord. And he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is the cup of my blood, blood of the new and everlasting covenant. This is perfect forgiveness. This is the result of repentance without regret. Repentance that is a joy to us. The unshackling of our souls. The restoration of our joy. The open door to the throne room of God. The higher calling. The peace that passes understanding. This blood will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We come from the sides and uh, receive the elements. And if you want to share them with somebody, you're welcome to do that. 
um, receive them with your family or, or alone. And then after we have received, you're free to go.